Now, all right, let's, let's take a quick poll. Now, that favorite bread in the room. What, what do you guys say? All right, how many of you say, oh, Charlie's, hands down? How many of you would raise your hands, oh, Charlie's? Okay, how many of you would say Texas Roadhouse? Oh, man, all right. Now, is it the roll or is it the butter? Let's be honest. It's the butter at Texas Roadhouse. All right, but how many of you, now, some of you guys are like, but Olive Garden and the breadsticks, is that anybody? See, the last few times that I've had Olive Garden breadsticks, I feel like you could have leveled a table with them. They just seem like they've gotten a little tough and chewy recently. So, but, but for me, I am a sucker for bread. I will eat, like, especially for me, it's those O'Charlie's rolls when they're just not quite done. You know what I'm talking about? They come out and they like, it's almost like cotton candy when you bite into it. It just kind of dissolves in your mouth and you get butter all over your hands and, and you you're just, grease feels like it's coming out of your pores for about a week. You know what I'm talking about? I could eat those things until I die if they come out that, that consistency. Now, when they come out that kind of rubbery texture, that's no, no good. But when they're that soft, like dissolves in your mouth kind of thing, man, there's nothing quite like good bread. Now, how many of you, though, have ever eaten so much bread that you couldn't eat your meal when it came? You ever done that? Yep. Uh, I'm the same way with salsa and chips. I can eat my body weight in tortilla chips. Um, so how many of you, though, as much as you love those rolls, you may eat yourself sick, but how many of you have eaten so many rolls that you've never needed to eat again? Anybody? I know, I am too, John. For those who couldn't hear that online, John said, no, but I'm hungry. I am too. And I hope that through this message, God uses that physical hunger to drive us to him. Because see, here's the thing. Every single one of us has eaten ourselves sick with bread sometime, some way, or someplace. However, it's always left us empty eventually. You may have skipped dinner, may not have wanted breakfast the next morning, But eventually you ate again, didn't you? What if there was a bread out there that would keep you satisfied for the rest of your life? Now, this sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? We talked back in John chapter 4 about the the water of life that Jesus gives, that, that, that he gives us this water that can satiate our deepest thirsts, that he who drinks of that water will never have to be thirsty again. But we're going to see that picture again today as we dive into God's Word. So go ahead and open your Bibles up to John chapter 6 this morning. Now, I'm going to go ahead and warn you about something. I debated on whether or not I was going to say this. Um, Many of you know I was out of town earlier this week, and so I didn't have my usual schedule for when I I work on my sermons. I started working on it a little bit ahead of time. By the way, uh, last week I had the privilege of going down to Wake Forest for my first class as a part of my continuing education. And man, it was awesome. We had so much fun. I'd love to tell you about it later. Um, It was just a tremendous experience. Then last weekend, we were away because we were visiting some friends in Pennsylvania. So between all of that, I didn't have a whole lot of time to just sit down and study. So the last half of this week, I have been wrestling with this passage. I've been trying to dig into it. I studied it some before I left. I studied it all week long. I I had moments where I'd be driving and all of a sudden it would kind of, kind of, crystallize in my head of, ah, this is where we need to go with this passage. And then I, no, that's, that's not quite it. So then I, I sat down and I'd worked on it and I started writing some stuff out. I had some things written down. And, and then last night I, I sat down and worked with it for like an hour and I just, I, I was going through and, and it just didn't feel right. 
So this morning when I got up, my body didn't catch the whole time change thing, and it was probably good because I needed to get up and can I just put those last finishing touches on it? And so I sat down and I went through and I made the slides and I printed off my stuff, my whole Sunday morning routine. And then it just didn't feel right. So about eight o'clock, my kids have gotten up. My wife's homesick, and so I brought the kids with me. So it's a little bit chaotic in our house. Um, whoever wrote "Easy Like a Sunday Morning" apparently never got kids ready for church, and so it's a little chaotic. About eight o'clock, once the kids get up and rolling, we try to leave about eight thirty so we can come down here. And I'm distracted, and my mind's going a million different places. And finally, I got an outline that clicked. Now, I hate doing this. I would much rather have had this thing written a week and a half ago. But I'm trusting that if God's doing this, it's because he wanted me to go a different direction than the way I was headed. Now, the, point is, the main point is still going to be the same, but the way we look at it is a little bit different. So if this one's not as polished as you may be used to hearing from me, um, I'll blame it on that. Blame it on my lack of focus this week, whatever you want to blame it on. You may come up to me after the service and say, you know, I didn't hear the first one you were going to give, but you probably should have stuck with that one. <laughs> But this morning, here's what we're going to try to do. We're going to try to remind you again about how awesome Jesus is. So if if I accomplish that through the lisping, stammering tongue, as the hymn writer wrote about, then we'll be okay. So as we dive in this morning, I want you to really walk out of here with one main idea. It's an offensive idea, as we'll see through this passage. It's a challenging idea. It's uncommon and it's unpopular in our day. But that idea is this. We need to feed on Jesus to find life. Feed on Jesus to find life. Now, if you're not familiar with the words that Jesus is going to give us here, that may sound really crazy and really weird, and it did to them the day he said it. But I hope that as we go through this, you're going to see the picture of what Jesus is illustrating and demonstrating. And in fact, I hope you feel the offensiveness of some of the things that Jesus says, because we need to wrestle through the fact that that. Following Jesus is not about just tasting. It's about feeding on him, taking him into the core of who we are and living a changed life because of that. So what we're going to do is try to cover the majority of John chapter 6. Now, it's going to be quite a feat for us because this is a big chapter and there's a lot of things in it. But as we do, we're going to look at it kind of in three different stages, okay? And as we do that, we're going to make some different points as we go through. I want you to be seeing that you should feed on Jesus because of these three reasons we'll find in the text. So start with me here in John chapter 6, verse 1. After this, Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. A huge crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was performing by healing the sick. Jesus went up to a mountain and sat down there with his disciples. Now, the Passover, a Jewish festival, was near. So when Jesus looked up and noticed a huge crowd coming toward him, he asked Philip, where can we buy bread so that these people can eat? He asked that to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. <laughs> I love that note, don't you? Like, that's just such a, a thing. John slides it in like, Jesus wasn't really asking. Like, he knew what he was going to do, right? Verse 7, Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough for each of them to have a little. A denarii, by the way, was basically a day's wage. So if you think about what a, a worker, a day's wage for a kind of a McDonald's worker or something like that, that would be a denarius. So 200, basically two-thirds of a year's worth of work wouldn't even be able to pray enough for each of us to have a little. Like you can think about it in terms of like 10 grand. Like he, he says, 
We could even buy $10,000. And remember, they didn't have Kroger. They didn't have Sam's. They didn't have Costco. There was nowhere to even go and buy this much bread. So Philip says, 200 denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough for each of them to have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. What are they for so many? You almost wonder, like, was he doing this to, like, was he sarcastic with this? <laughs> well, Jesus, we got this kid. He's got his Lunchable. <laughs> I mean, what are we going to do with that? I love it. Jesus said, verse 10, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, so they sat down. The men numbered about 5,000. Add in the women, and we're looking north of ten to 15,000 people. The men numbered about 5,000. 11, then Jesus took the loaves, and after giving thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also with the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were full, not just when they'd had something to eat, but when they were full, he told his disciples, collect leftovers so that nothing is wasted. So they collected them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces from the five barley loaves that were left over by those who'd eaten. When the people saw the sign he'd done, they said, this truly is the prophet who's come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus realized that they were about to come and make him, take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Now, the first thing that we want to see about Jesus is that we should feast on Jesus. We should feed on him because, number one, he's able to provide more than enough. He's able to provide more than enough. You see that here in this passage, right? I, I love the, the idea here. You've got this guy who's got five barley loaves, two fish, and 5,000 men plus their wives plus their kids. This is a huge crowd that's gathered. I can't imagine trying to feed that. Um, you guys know we're a part of the Southern Baptist Convention, and the Southern Baptist Convention has disaster relief trailers that at their peak, they're designed to be able to serve about 7,000 people with a whole team of folks with a massive um, army of supplies to be able to feed six, 7,000 people during the course of a day. And yet Jesus takes this kid's lunch and is able to feed 5,000, 10,000, 15,000 people. And again, not just a little bit. It says that he feeds till they're full. He feeds them so much that they can't eat anymore. They've had enough rolls. Nobody ever tells the waiter at O'Charlie's that you've had enough rolls. They can always bring you one more. Or, or like at Texas Roadhouse, sometimes when you ask for a, a bag to put the rolls in and they come back with a whole bag of fresh rolls. But these folks said, man, I can't eat anymore. What did they pick up? 12 baskets of bread. Why 12? It's kind of a strange number, isn't it? Well, sort of, except for the fact that 12 is a significant number throughout the Old Testament. Throughout the Bible, God uses the number 12 often, doesn't he? 12 tribes of Israel. So here as he sits down and he feeds these 10, 15,000 people and has 12 baskets left over. You see that Jesus' provision here is sufficient, not just for the need of the moment, but for the need of the entire nation. He's got 12 baskets, one for each of the tribes. Anybody in the people of God, he's got plenty for. So when we're looking at feeding on Jesus, what we're talking about is coming to him because he can provide more than enough. Scripture often speaks about the fact that he has this abundance that he provides, that he gives far above and beyond all that we ask or think that he can do there in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. 
God is able to do far more abundantly beyond what you think. It talks about the riches of his grace. This was no thing. By the way, have you ever tried to use your imagination to think about how did this actually work? Like, have you ever, you ever watched, there was a viral video a few years ago about a guy that would go to like, you ever been to the beach and there's a, a wall of showers outside at the beach just for you to get the sand off of you, okay? There was this guy, he would climb up on the other side of the wall and when somebody would be washing their hair, he would squirt more shampoo onto their hair. It's amazing to watch how maddening it is because you sit there and you scrub it all out and then all of a sudden you wash wash your face and you reach up and there's more soap. And so you scrub it all out and then you wash it all out and then he squirts more and there's more soap. People get furious about it. I would too. But you think it was like that? You think it's like I pull off a chunk of this bread and then I pull off a chunk of this bread and I pull off a chunk of this bread and I pull off a chunk of this bread and I pull off a chunk of this bread, and I, can you imagine? Can you imagine watching that? How unbelievable is it that God would do this? How miraculous is this that God would go so far as to feed this crowd? Now, here's what's really interesting about this. We're going to find that throughout this whole chapter, these people completely missed the point of what Jesus was doing. What did he do? He fed them anyway. He fed them anyway. He knew that they wouldn't understand. He knew, in fact, that as we'll see by the end of the chapter, most of these people would abandon him, but he did it anyway. So as we think about feeding on Jesus, which by the way, I know I haven't defined that yet. We'll get there. We feed on Jesus because he provides more than enough. More than enough. Twelve baskets left over. Now, we... Fast forward a little bit. We're going to jump over some of the passage. What I love about this, by the way, uh, John is in such a, a, a hurry to tell us about the bread of life and give us the meaning of this that he basically skips over the fact that that night when they got in the boat, Jesus sent the disciples on ahead of them. There was a massive storm, and Jesus just walks out to them. The walking on the water thing, he gives us like three or four verses like it's no big deal. Oh, yeah, by the way, they left. Jesus walked on the water, no big deal. So then he picks us back up on the other side of the lake the next morning. Can you imagine, by the way, that our God is so big that it's like, oh, yeah, there was that time he walked on the water. Whatever, let's keep moving. That's how awesome God is. He gets over to the other side of the lake. People knew that the disciples had left, but they didn't know that Jesus had left because there was only one boat that left. Well, word starts traveling back around the lake that, hey, Jesus is actually over here with his disciples. So the crowd jumps in boats. They walk around. They try to get there. And all of a sudden, the crowd reforms around Jesus over on the other side of the lake. It's an interesting thing there in verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? <laughs> wait a sec. You, wait, yeah. But Jesus doesn't answer their question. Jesus says, that's not really the issue here. They said, Rabbi, when did you get here? Well, Jesus answered verse 28, or 26, excuse me. Truly, I tell you, you're looking for me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. And Jesus just doesn't pull any punches here. You're not looking for me. You're looking for my stuff. You saw the signs. You were filled. It goes on, verse 27. Don't work for the food that perishes, 
but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which, is, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal of approval on him. Well, what can we do to perform the works of God, they asked. Jesus replied, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one he has sent. You see, not only can he provide more than enough, we're going to see in this section that he not only, he actually gives life, not just sustains it. He gives life, not just sustains it. Now go back to our bread analogy we've been using all day. I know, I'm stark. As you think about it, bread fills you up for a while, but it can't keep you alive forever. There's nothing you've ever eaten that actually gives you life. Everything you eat sustains your life. It gives you the calories you need, gives you the nutrition you need. It sustains your life, but it doesn't give you life. But what is Jesus saying here? Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life. We'll see that he goes on to say, down in verse 35, jump down there. He says, I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty. Jump over to verse 47. Truly, I tell you, anyone who believes in me has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. Verse 50, this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that anyone may eat of it and not die. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. He'll live forever. See, the second thing about Jesus here is that he gives life, not just sustains it. As you're looking at this, guys, he draws a contrast between manna in the wilderness and the bread that he's offering. Now, let's, let's go back and let's remember the whole thing about manna. Many of you guys may not be familiar with that. You, you may not, of course, you may actually be thinking like an RPG and the mana potions are blue and the health is red, right? And some of you guys are gamers that you thought there, you went there. Different kind of manna, okay? So as you're looking at this manna, this goes back to the Old Testament. This goes back to when God led his people out of Egypt into the wilderness where they would actually wander around for 40 years. While they're wandering in the desert, I don't know if you figured this out or not, but the desert is not the best place to get food, okay? Uh, there's not a 7-Eleven on every corner. They don't have sheets. Um, they, I, man, I'm a sucker for sheets. I am so excited that they're putting one right here. I'm going to get fat and I'm going to get poor, but it's going to taste good, Okay? There's not a Sheets on every corner or a Wawa if you're from up north, I guess. There, there's not a Kroger. There was nowhere for them to be able to find food. So what did God do? Well, he gave it to them. In Exodus chapter 16, it starts talking about how God gave them bread every morning. He said, here's what's going to happen. You're going to go to bed at night, and the dew's going to fall, and when you wake up and the dew burns off, there's going to be bread on the ground. Okay, that's different. But you know what happened in Exodus chapter 16? They went to bed at night. There was dew on the ground when they got up. Actually, I think I may have these verses on the screen there, Jamie. Uh, Exodus chapter 16. If not, I can read them to you real quick. I did put a bookmark there. Haha. So in verse 14, it says, When the layer of dew evaporated, there were fine flakes on the desert surface as fine as frost on the ground. When the Israelites saw it, they asked each other, What is it? Because they didn't know what it was. You know what that is? Manna. Manna in Hebrew literally means, what is it? So for 40 years, they ate, what is it? It's a little bit different than eating whatchamacallits for 40 years, isn't it? 
Then the Israelites saw it. They asked one another, what is it? Because they didn't know what it was. Moses told them, it is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather as much of it as each person needs to eat. You may take two quarts per individual according to the number of people that each has in his tent. Okay? So two quarts every morning, you pick up your own bread. So the Israelites did this. Some gathered a lot, some a little. When they measured it by quarts, the person who gathered a lot had no surplus. And the person who gathered a little had no shortage. How does that work? Because it's God. The one who gathered a little bit had everything he needed. The one who gathered a lot had everything he needed. Each gathered as much as he needed to eat. Moses said to them, no one is to let any of it remain until morning. But they didn't listen to Moses. That's a shocker. They didn't listen to Moses the entire time they were in the wilderness. But they didn't listen to Moses. Some people left part of it until the morning, and it bred worms and stank. Therefore, Moses was angry with them. Anybody ever left something funky in the trash overnight, and then you wake up the next morning, and the, uh, the spouse who didn't gets mad at the other? Like, the whole house reeks. Why did you not take that out last night? Right? See, the manna that they ate every morning, by the way, you say, well, I just had a short self-life. Actually, it's interesting because God told them they were supposed to collect twice as much on the day before the Sabbath, and God kept it good both Friday and Saturday, and they got fresh stuff on Sunday. This was not normal bread. This was bread that God gave. This was stuff that only God could do, working in miraculous ways to provide for his people. And that sustained them for 40 years of walking around in the desert. But go back here to John. What's Jesus say about that? John chapter 6 Jump down again to to verse 49. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. It wasn't that the manna killed them. It wasn't poisonous. It wasn't, you know, something wrong with the manna. It just was food. Food has the ability to sustain life, but food can't give life. However, as you look at Jesus, as we look at feeding on him, here's the thing that's different. When we feed on Jesus, he gives us life. He actually makes us alive. Ephesians 2 talks about the fact that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, but that he has made us alive with him. He gives us life, not just sustains it. Verse 50, this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that anyone may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. So we need to feed on Jesus. Why? One, because he provides more than enough. Two, because he gives life, not just sustains it. The third thing I want you to see out of this passage, though, not only does he give us life, and here's the thing, and this is where it comes down for us to feed on Jesus, is that he gave his life to give me mine. He gave his life to give you life. See, he's been talking about eating this bread of life. He's been saying, I will give you this bread. Great, what is it? This bread is his own flesh and his own blood. Pick up again there in verse 51. The last Section of verse 51 says, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. At that, the Jews argued among themselves, how can this man give us flesh to eat? 
Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Because my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. It's not like the manna your ancestors ate, and they died. The one who eats this bread will live forever. Now, some have said that this is talking about communion the body and the blood that we celebrate through the bread and the cup. Although that's involved in the picture, interestingly, when the Bible speaks of communion, it actually talks about the body and doesn't use the term the flesh. This isn't saying that the way to be saved is by taking the Eucharist. No, what he's saying here is the way that you are saved is by consuming the flesh and the blood of Jesus. Now, does that sound horribly offensive? Does that sound disgusting? Did you know that the early Christians were actually accused of being cannibals because of this? They actually, the Romans had heard that they had this love feast where they ate the body and the blood of their Savior to accuse them of being cannibals. This is gross. So what's Jesus saying here? Well, for one, I want you to rest in the offense of this for a moment. Jesus could have said it differently, couldn't he? But he didn't. Now, down later, he tells us that he used a, he's using a physical analogy for spiritual truth. He said these words are in life. He's, he's using a picture here of a spiritual reality. But he wants you to see Following Jesus is not about tasting. Following Jesus is not about just kind of being around Christians and kind of throwing a little bit of money in the plate and, and, and kind of volunteering maybe to do a thing or two. No, the way to find life is to feed on Jesus' flesh and his blood. All this goes back to the cross. He was speaking in future tense here because he's looking forward to what will take place. We're looking back on the cross. See, on the cross, the Bible tells us that what happened was you and I were sinners. We still are. We had sinned and fallen short of God's glory. That means that we had done wrong things. We had not done the right things we were supposed to. Our thoughts were turned to ourselves and away from God. And in all of that, we are sinners. And the Bible says that we deserve to die because of it. But Jesus loved us so much that he would come and he would take my death upon himself. That his body would be broken on a cross. That his blood would be poured out for me. So now for me to believe in him, he says, he who believes has everlasting life. Belief is not just knowing up here. It's not just knowing facts about the Bible. Believing is taking this into the deep, core of who you are. Belief is surrendering completely and laying everything down at his feet because he gave his life to give you life. 
He died and was raised to show that he paid the penalty for sin. And now he rules and reigns over all of creation. And he's offering you that very life. But you can't just get it by being around for the food. The crowd that day was there because he'd given them good bread to eat. They followed him all night through a storm, and that sounds really good. But they just wanted the stuff that came with following Jesus. You might have heard some preacher on TV talking about how Jesus will make you rich if you give money to his ministry. You might have seen somebody whose life genuinely has been transformed. And you want to follow Jesus just because it sure looks like a good way to be. The people at church are nice. You know, it makes me feel good to sing these songs. That's not feeding on Christ. Has there been that time in your life where you've said, man, I've got nothing on my own. I'm just going to lay it all out right here. God, I believe that you died for me. And I'm putting everything on betting everything on red, right? On the blood of Jesus. God, I I believe it. I believe that I can't do this on my own. I'm tired of eating rolls that just don't satisfy. I, I need you. What's this look like? Well, I want you to see the response of the two different people in this group. Jesus has laid this out. You need to feed on me on my flesh, on my blood. You have to take Christ into your inner being. By the way, not not to keep yourself saved. You don't do that. That's what Jesus does. But because he has drawn you to himself and you've placed that trust in Christ in response to what he's done, as you've placed that in him, then you... You continue walking and feeding and feasting on Christ, walking in the strength that he's given you by his grace and his mercy because he made you alive. Well, the the crowd that day, look at what they said in verse 60. Therefore, when many of his disciples heard this, they said, this teaching's hard. Who can accept it? Guys, if anybody has ever told you that being a Christian is easy, they've lied to you. It would be so much easier, so much easier for me to get a job in sales, to try to climb a ladder, try to do what I want, when I want, with my time, with my resources. Well, that'd be so much easier than following Jesus. So the crowd says, man, this is hard. Jesus rebukes them a little bit. Pick up again in verse 66. From that moment, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. There were 15,000 people that day. We don't know how many made it back to the other side of the lake. But when they figured out that they weren't getting more free bread, that Jesus had given them all the swag he was going to give them, this is too much. I'm out. This whole flesh, blood thing, nah, that's not me. They walked off and never came back. But that's not the end of the story, is it? Verse 67, so Jesus said to the 12, 
his 12 disciples that he had picked who were following him. You don't want to go away too, do you? Now imagine this. Imagine if while I was preaching, this room just emptied. When I said that you need to, to consume the body and blood of Jesus, people turned their nose up, started walking out. Well, there's a handful of people here. Y'all going to leave too? Imagine that the air was sucked out of the room. Imagine they kind of looked at their feet, tried to figure out. And then all of a sudden, Peter speaks up. I love this statement from him. Verse 68, Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom will you have the words of eternal life? I don't know, I may be reading into it, but I feel like there's a heaviness in that statement. Peter recognizes that following Jesus is going to be really, really hard. It's going to be incredibly costly. He doesn't know yet, but it's going to end up costing him his own life. By the way, you know how Peter died? He was crucified upside down is what tradition tells us. You know what happened right before he died? He had to watch his wife be crucified before him. His last words to his wife were for her to endure. All of these crowds walked away. Peter said, where are we going to go? There's no other choice. Yes, following Jesus is incredibly difficult. And yes, there are days when you're going to be lonely, you're going to be frustrated, you're going to be aggravated, you're going to be discouraged. God's not going to answer prayer the way that you want him to. You're going to be confused about what he's doing. There are going to be those days. Yet it is in Christ alone that we find eternal life. There's nowhere else to go. There's nothing else that will satisfy. Some of you guys may have seen there was an interview, a 60 Minutes interview back in 2005 with Tom Brady after he won his third Super Bowl ring. If you've ever watched this interview, I would encourage you, I almost showed it this morning. There's about a minute-long clip where the interviewer says, so how do you feel basically? What's next? Tom Brady says, you know, I don't know. I'm 27 years old. I've got three Super Bowl rings. I've achieved all of my goals, but still there's something missing. I watched him play Monday night, right? Or two, or I guess on Sunday. He's got seven rings now. But you know what? I think he's still looking. I think he's been trying to eat bread that doesn't satisfy. They asked him in that interview, which Super Bowl ring is your favorite? And he said, the next one. Now, that's a great driven kind of attitude. You know, there's some good stuff to that, but there's also the reality that the next one will never satisfy. Same as the alcoholic, that the next drink is not going to satisfy. Any kind of addiction. Even addicted to our own pride. Addicted to comfort. Listen, guys, 15 minutes in bed isn't going to fix it. Get up and do your quiet time. 
I say that to myself, okay? This morning, when my body woke up at 5 o'clock, I was like, no, this ain't happening. No, no, God, I, I, I'm good. I, I can wait a while. Thankfully, God in his goodness said, no, you need to get up. And I got to sit down and read my Bible before my family woke up. It was quiet. I got to spend some time in God's word, and I got to feed on Jesus. Now, here he's talking about that initial time of believing and putting our faith and our trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord, where he makes us alive. The Bible teaches that you can't lose that. There's nothing that can take that away from you. However, I I will say that many of us have stopped feeding on Jesus if we're not careful. I'm good because I'm saved, but, but the reality is we're still living like we're looking for bread to satisfy us when it's right there. You have eternal life. But again, my challenge and my question for you today is which, is, which of these two is you? Are you the crowd that says, you know, I was just going to follow Jesus because it sounded cool? And by the way, if you're here and, or if you're watching us online and you're not sure yet if you're a Christian, you're not sure if you want to believe, please, I, I want you to stay with us. I, I don't want you to walk away. I'm glad that you're here. I'm glad that you're listening. I'm glad that you're asking questions. That's part of the process of coming to know who Jesus is. And you're welcome here as long as it takes place, but I don't want you to stay there. I want you to taste and see that the Lord is good. I want you to feed on the flesh of the one who was crucified for you. I want you to drink deeply of the blood that cleanses all of your sin. And as strange a picture as that is, I want you to be able to rejoice in the fact that there's a God who loved you so much that he would give his life so that you could live. So if you're in the crowd, don't walk away. Don't be content to just look for the external blessings of following Jesus, but but take it deep into your soul. Believe in him, not just head knowledge, but with everything you are, count everything on him. But again, I I know in, in this room, probably a lot of you guys are Christians. A lot of you are believers. You have been saved. Are you recognizing that that you have everything your soul needs? Man, I've been convicted by that this week. I've been struggling a lot of different ways in my own personal heart and life. I'll be honest with it. I'm not perfect. I wish I was there, but I'm just not. I've had a lot of things that have been going through my head. I've been reading a lot about Jesus as the shepherd and, and God shepherding his people and how he leads them out into these pastures where they can eat and be filled. And you know what picture's been in my head? Of a sheep standing over a patch of green grass and just looking at it. Just looking at it. God's led us to it. He's put it right there. But I feel like I'm a dumb sheep that some days just sits there and looks at it. Maybe that's you. Maybe you've forgotten that in Christ, you have everything that you need. In Christ, you have joy, you have hope, you have peace, you have love. You have the satisfaction that nothing can take away. But you're just looking at it. You're waiting for God to do something, and he's already done it. So why don't you just start saying, God, instead of God, give me peace, God, thank you that you have given me peace. 
God, give me joy. You know, God, thank you for giving me joy. Help me walk in it. You've already done it. It's already there. So let's feed deeply on Jesus this week. Bow your heads and close your eyes this morning. I'm going to invite Morgan up just to play in the background here, and I just want to give you a moment to respond. Remember that Jesus is the one who provides more than enough. There's no lack in him. There's nothing he's missing. There's nothing he doesn't have. He gives you life. He's not just offering you external bread to sustain you, but he gives you life. And that life comes because he gave his life so that you could have life. What do you need to do in response this morning? Perhaps you're here this morning and you realize that you're a part of that crowd that has never truly followed Christ. You've been here for the benefits and the bonus, but you're not willing to truly rest in him. Then today I'm going to invite you to feed on the fact that he was broken for you. If you've never made that decision, I'd love to talk with you more about that. I'll be down front. You can come down and talk with me about it. Maybe that you're here though as well and you know you've made that decision to follow Christ but you've forgotten that he's the one that provides you with everything you need. So stop looking for O'Charlie's. Stop looking for Texas Roadhouse, for Olive Garden, for your job, for your kids, for your wife, for whatever to give you satisfaction. And instead, feed deeply again on Christ. Remember all that you have in him.